You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to Lena Lakes Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. And we are coming to you right here on Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, talking all things habitat and land management. This week's podcast brought to you by Pure Air Natives. Check them out for all your native grass and native wildflower needs, even food plot seed. That's right. That's so right. They got all the seed you could want and imagine. And it's actually exciting because next week we're going to be filming um, and kind of bringing them into the the fold here of... I guess laying the groundwork for future films, um, but bringing in their system and neat things that we've got developing through Pure Air Natives into this first, I guess, fourth film of the year. So um, that's coming around the bend. That's right. Uh, I think, you know, we have several partners they've heard us mention, but Pure Air, we haven't really, uh, we, we started in the spring and you don't really plant your native grasses whenever we've been talking about them like late early summer a lot of times it's winter and Mm -hmm. and early spring so as we progress into fall you'll see us start kind of prepping and and we've been doing the whole cedar removal and getting that front pasture back into uh a a restoration if you will of of native grass and wildflowers so that's all coming so check them out puranatives.com all right week two Week two of the QDMA online modules. Um, this week was devoted to antlers, all things antlers too, and it, it's such a broad range. You know, we can talk about you know shedding and velvet, and you know the composition of the minerals that are within antlers, and um, what are they even used for? Are they, you know, a preference for for does? You know, is that how they select a mate? All this stuff revolved around antlers and once again the way the information is laid out and and put together um allows a lot of information from a reader uh, for hopefully you guys to gain information on antlers that's right and if you guys haven't checked out last week's podcast we're talking about the qdma modules to uh, there's nine modules and we have Eight, eight modules. Eight, eight modules. We're yep. doing nine weeks. I, I forget about that because uh, of the national convention coming up in July. So um, we're doing nine weeks over the eight modules that are all things deer. And uh, 
if you want to sign up, Matt can tell you how to figure it out. <laughs> Slipped your mind too? You're getting old, man. <laughs> so there is a special offer, guys, uh, for the QDMA online modules. It is www.qdma.com forward slash land and legacy and you go and use that you get 20% off of signing up for those online modules again they're courses with articles videos um, graphs and all this stuff devoted this week specifically is to antlers but they compile it up and um, great resources for everyone to learn about the most common topics revolving around whitetails and I think now this isn't true for all colleges and universities but for me, I, I I love my college experience, but this type of information, if you're looking at from a wildlife management part, we didn't talk about it. No. And so if you are one of those people that are looking for more education on wildlife management, specifically the white-tailed deer, check out Cutie May, and they have a lot of great resources there. And this is one of those. Go it's a library, yeah. honestly. And it, so a library, <laughs> for me, I think back... Um, going from wildlife management early on into ag, it was more specific exactly. Um, I, I would like to have studied the white-tailed deer, bobwhite quail, wild turkey, but that wasn't really specific to my college. So I went into ag, which had a much better hands-on in-the-field learning experience. So, Well, that's the thing, you know, and we get the question all the time with, with people looking to do, you know, maybe a, a similar, have a similar job is what kind of education did you have? Did you get? And the, just the field of wildlife, it's not just game species. So there's a lot of programs out there that vary across the board and what kind of information you might get at a college um, setting. So this type of information that QDMA offers in their online modules is very specific to whitetails, um, obviously, but it just, it lays it out in a, in a great fashion, um, to be able to educate yourself, just become smarter. And as anyone knows, if you sit around a deer camp long enough, you're going to hear some, um, not so factual information, <laughs> right? You get That's these right. stories, uh, well, grandpa said, you gotta call them. Yeah. Um, you know, way back when it was different. Well, it's the same species. Anyhow, this is where you can kind of debunk those myths and, and put a lot of worry possibly to rest uh, with just the solid scientific information um, that they have offered here. So again, this week is antlers. We're going to be going through um, another topic next week. Um, don't going to give it away yet, but we're going basically just top to bottom right in the order that they lay it out. So um, this week, antlers. Antlers. What, what were the points, Adam, that you got that just stood out to you, that were like, you know what, I knew that, but I didn't realize it, if that makes sense, right? For you've, me, you've heard of it, if but. that's the, the question, let's just use the same questions we had last week, was what was interesting? Um, to me, I liked the correlation, I'm trying to think, actually, I think it was the guys from uh, Mississippi State, and their little graph on, um, they were taking the, Diameter or circumference of the yearling buck. Diameter, yeah. Diameter of the yearling buck antler size and trying to correlate that with um, being north, f- further north and further south. And I thought that was a very interesting article. Um, and basically that there was no correlation really um, with the antler size being bigger the farther north you went. Mm-hmm. All right, and it obviously, um, as we'll get into some other things, land use is such an important factor in um, determining 
antler size and and everything um but they were they were correlating or trying to find a correlation with the antler diameter um uh, basis of circumference there um and and relating that to bergman's law which is the smaller the 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 species the closer they get to the equator the smaller the body size is yep. and and antlers like you said they didn't prove that um no. they and it is one of those rules where it is been studied to where animals are bigger the further away from the equator mm-hmm. they go of that species but and so they tried to take that with the antler size and say okay is the same thing true and it was not they didn't find that which leads into the complexity of antlers though like and and, and how many things impact and influence antler sizes um which is to me what i found kind of most important or or interesting um and to me, I'm going to read a quote from there because I like the way they put it. Um, something that we try and talk about all the time, but just it was worded very well. Um, so I don't know, like the three most important factors influencing antler growth are age, nutrition, and genetics. Um, and as managers, this quote, as managers, we do best by balancing herds with their habitats, improving buck age structures, and putting the most mature bucks in the population as possible. Then we relax and reap the benefits of our management efforts. And a couple things out of that was we're balancing deer herds with their habitats. Super important. Like we can't just look around at, at all these other regions and compare, you know, this to that. Things vary property to property. So we have to be specific in balancing deer herds with habitats and then improving the age structure. Maybe it's letting deer walk, um, get to older age class, or if you've got a bunch of them at older age class, shooting some, um, but just putting the most mature bucks in the population as possible. And then then my favorite part, relax. Uh, well, I was going to say relax. relax. That's what awesome. are they talking about? I don't know. That's, <laughs> it's like if you get the habitat, because there's like, I think a constant, it's almost like that game Snake, like it was the first game you ever had on oh, a cell phone. Where you follow the, the little guy around you and you try to catch grows. the little thing yeah. and the snake grows and well, anyway, it's it, when it comes to habitat management, it's like the better you improve the habitat, the more animals, and, it, and you start to see this correlation where it seems like you start carrying a few more deer, and a doe starts having fawns instead of just a, or she starts having twins instead of one fawn, and they start to really build up to where it's like as the population increases, you're like, oh, I'm going to get to enjoy it, seeing a lot of deer, and before you know it, you're having to shoot quite a few deer because it's getting out of hand. Yeah, you, you, you got to keep up. Yeah. you got to keep up with and that. there's always, always something to do. So it's like you can either, if you if you relax too long, you, you're going on the opposite side of what you had before was you, had, you didn't have enough deer, so you improved the habitat to where you're like, okay, I feel like I have enough deer. And all of a sudden, two years later, you have too many deer and you can't grow food plots and you're having trouble with with establishing great habitat because they're eating you out of house and home. So then you're back to trying to shoot more deer. Yeah. And that's a, that's a whole population thought. Um, this is, you know, an antler growth kind of and and relaxing in retrospect to that. If you just do these things, Hey, kick back a little bit, but you're totally right that if you do kick back and you have incredible habitat, it doesn't take long um, and potentially populations are skyrocketing. We see that a bunch. We were just uh, talked about it there uh, when we reviewed the property there in Michigan. There are so many deer, 
And Kip has been on the podcast talking about um, the importance of antlerless deer removal to increase the quality of bucks in an area. So if you've got too many, man, you've got to balance that out. Yeah, how many times do you hear of a person who has really, really good deer, really big bucks, and they kind of start focusing three or four seasons on trying to kill specific bucks, and they stop shooting does because they're afraid it's going to affect that buck. And then all of a sudden, they're like, my bucks just aren't as big as they used to be. Well, you've got 30, 40 more deer per square mile than you used to have. So you don't have the food sources that you used to have. Mm-hmm. So Habitat changes. So And, and it, it just is more emphasis on management. Got to do it. Constant management. Constant. Right. constant. What was something else? I really... Uh, for me, the interesting things that I I just really enjoyed was the pictures of the bucks that had gotten injured, and some of them never recovered as far as their their antlers. And then the other ones that had the goofy, I think of that buck down in, I think it was University of Georgia, he had done something, and so they just cut his antlers off. Well, that, that was, cutting the antlers off was part of the study. Okay, I thought it. I thought it said that he had injured or but gotten he, injured. He did end up injuring, like they thought, maybe a nerve within the pedicle. Yeah, so he didn't shed that little nub that they mm-hmm. had cut off, and it kept growing around it. Just seeing all those pictures of the unique um, bucks and their unique antlers of injuries, a couple leg injuries that were really weird looking. I'll, I'll just be honest with you, to where it's like, boy, that's it's crazy what a white-tailed deer can withstand survive and what happens to their antlers because of it mm-hmm. yeah yeah no doubt that's i was gonna say they, they termed it like uh boomerang bucks that the ones that do get injured but then they see that that year that it got injured and affected the antlers but then the body heals that injury and then they're back to normal yeah there was it, one buck out of new york that had gotten shot mm-hmm. and so because of that wound they could tell who he was and he was had kind of a messed up you could tell he was, he was really gnarly. I like they shot him at two and a half. Yeah, really gnarly at three and a half, and then it was like a mid one forties. Yeah, typical completely tent. healed. Yeah, so but that goes to show you a, another reason why culling just based on antler characteristics can be a bad decision, mm-hmm. um, or a, you can misinform you on the health of the deer or the potential down the road of what that deer may turn into because it could be an injury that they overcome. Um, so yeah, that boomerang bucks thing was really cool. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. One yep. of the other um, things that was stood out to me was the information that they have and present um, against, basically against culling and the ineffectiveness of culling deer based on antler quality. Yeah, and 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 it goes to an entire genetic thing of hey, listen, the way deer breed and the um, inability to control the way they breed. For instance, this is um, a, a small quote. It says, since many bucks each do a small amount of breeding, and since the does may breed multiple bucks, it's impossible to control or even predict which bucks are going to breed does in the wild. Like, every age class breed does. And sometimes if they have fawns, I think it's uh, 20 to 25% of the fawns have different dads. Like, it's so random. No one knows who's breeding who. So trying to control your genetic antler genetics down the road by harvesting is completely ineffective. 
It just doesn't work. That's right. Just doesn't work. <laughs> it just doesn't work. I, yeah. I, I, you know, I don't even know if I say I wish it could. Um, that's one of the mysteries of the randomness of what what happens. And and to honestly go back to the importance of age and habitat, you've got to have that, and then and then let the rest just work itself out. That's right. That's right. I thought it was a great module too. Out of uh, this one and the last one, um, I think I enjoyed. This one probably a little bit more shocker because the fact that all you care about is antlers, Adam. That's it. That's <laughs> it. it. It's just one of those things, you know. Uh, people, uh, people like those antlers and antlers, not horns. That's it. That's right. Make that make that uh, clear. Um, well, I think that with all this information, there's still some things that are unknown. And, and I guess, um, things that you can't control. Thank goodness we can't control it because we probably really would have screwed it up. Um, but that's the mystery of antlers. That's, that's the, the mysticism of, you never know what each deer at, at a year and a half, there's some three pointers that could turn into a Boone and Crockett just as easy as a, a yearling that's got, uh, as a mainframe 10. It yeah. happens. But to predict or, or put him in a category of he's inferior at that age, then he could blow up into something huge. Um, it's, it's so cool to watch deer grow throughout multiple years, too, if you have that opportunity. For sure. All right. Summer management. Yes. And this topic kind of comes from the whole uh, busy time of year, driving down the road, things that we notice, and that leads to discussions on the phone discussions in group texts and then that leads to podcast podcast topics yeah. really that's how we get a lot of our um, ideas it's just things that we experience and things that we see or conversations that we have or you'll read an article share it and then i'll read an article and share it and it's like you know there's some connections there or you never you never know where we're thinking or where we're going but it just these random texts turn into conversations like you said and now we're on a podcast. That's right. And <laughs> and it's, you know, uh, we ask this a lot on our Facebook page, things that people enjoy, the topics that people enjoy. And uh, we get the seasonal management one quite a bit. So we're here for summer management, things you can do during the hot dog days of summer. Um, and we will say basically summer as a deer or land manager is anywhere between the end of turkey season and the beginning of food plot season. Because food plot season, a lot of times, is that window of, okay, I'm going to start staying out of the woods. You're talking and about fall food plot Fall season. food yep. plot season, yeah. So turkey season's over, you plant your spring food plots, or maybe you don't even plant spring food plots, but turkey season's over, and now you're back focused on, on things you can do for deer season. And uh, so it's, it's a big window. For us, it's May through um, late July, early August. Things you can do. Now... As we travel with both the real estate and consulting, we see a lot of things. And this year, we've kind of been seeing a lot of things that we've just have been light bulbs. And as we evolve and start to understand soil health even more, that leads into things that we're seeing in a food plot world or on overall just land that's going, ugh, that's one mistake we don't want to make. And that's really just trying anything that kills our soil health. Like, I think we made, we, we saw it during, you know, time when, when, when farmers were putting seed in the ground or, or 
food plotters were actively out there trying to put in um, summer annual mixes and, and saw it on social media. I think we made the comment like, um, why are we why are we disking the soil then immediately after that praying and praying for rain and get mad when it you don't get the rain your your crop fails like think of the let's just say it think of the facebook posts we've seen in the last three months that have been showing a a rotary tiller or Mm -hmm. a chisel plow uh, or a big old aggressive disc and saying and turning the soil and then say food plots in praying for rain that's it. Do, do, do we need to leave a longer pause again? <laughs> no, <laughs> I again? just, I don't, I don't, I don't understand that that theology or that practice or that management strategy to to try and grow healthy forage. Well, let's let's just rob it. Let's rob the home, that foundation of one of the very three things that that forage needs like we all know it needs sunlight it needs um moisture and it needs uh the right nutrients but before we do anything let's take one of those away yeah it's like (laughs) to me i just think if i pulled up to my house tonight and i said boy i hope it doesn't rain but i just roll the windows down it'd be like i could easily solve that problem well it rains it's gonna rain it might not rain, but I'm still. Even if it does, I've I've solved the problem. But it's just like let's let's take away all the moisture in the soil, and then let's start praying again for rain. Yeah, yeah. it's like calling time out and saying, God, just hold on one second. Let yeah. me get everything go. Let me get everything ready. Let me screw this up first, <laughs> and <laughs> then and then I'm gonna pray for rain. And then I think of the rain. Faithful, Lord, Lord, I am faithful for rain here. Yeah. <laughs> Bring down the rain. Yeah. Uh, get the staff from the. the I'm Honey, the, the circle maker. Yeah. I'm standing I'm get in the staff in the circle. Beat the ground with it. Yeah, and and I think of the rainfall um, simulator that we saw just recently, yeah. and how we had four different types of vegetation or soils. Soil Let's profiles. talk about that real quick, okay. and, and just just to highlight this, um, what we're talking about and in, in this RCS, visual, yeah. NRCS Rainfall Simulator. And I'm sure if you get on Google, you can find it. YouTube it. And so basically, let's describe it as as four trays of soil. About 12 inches wide. It looked like a brownie bacon pad. It looked just like a a cookie sheet. But probably three inches deep. Three inches deep baking pan filled with... With soil profile, one side was straight dirt, like you'd taken it right out of the garden. It's been t- plowed, it's been disc. It was all just loose. You could just run your fingers right through it, like some people might say, a perfectly prepared seed bed. That's right. And soil number two was a what was soil number two? I'm trying soil to graze, graze, grazed. Grazed to pasture. lip high. Yeah. Yep. Pasture. Grasses. Uh, mixed grasses and weeds grazed lip high. So picture um, roots, little horse, bit of roots. Horse pasture. Horse pasture. <laughs> yeah, so one inch vegetation. Number three was a rota- rotationally grazed um, pasture that had a lot of vegetation, uh, multiple species, looked good. Number four was a hay field. So that about, got cut for ten years in a row. Cut for yeah. ten years in a row. So 
um, looked very similar to the glip high pasture, but instead of being grazed, it was cut for hay 10 years in a row. And then up above that was a little tube, basically with a little thing that rotated back and forth, and it was supposed to simulate rainfall. And it spun back and forth, so there was an even distribution of rain on these four soil profiles. And they ran it with a rain gauge in one of them until it was like a half inch in five minutes or something like that. I think it was an inch. It put down an inch. Okay, an inch in five minutes. Mm -hmm. um, Very short time period, but just like a summer rain. And there was two jugs. Basically, there was a jug below the soil, and then there was, and it was tilted at a slant. Each each one of those pans was tilted at a slant. Yeah, a slight slant, so it was like a side slope. And there was a jug on the end of it to catch the runoff, and then a jug underneath to catch the water that had ran through the soil. And they ran that inch of rain for like five minutes. And the results were probably shocking for a lot of people. I know a lot of farmers, they were uncomfortable in their overalls. They yeah, did not right. like that. That, <laughs> no. that put them, that shook their boots right there. They so, didn't know what to do. As, as you might guess, you would think of, uh, after listening to our podcast, Armor in the Soil, um, we've you used so many YouTube videos, but you watch Gabe Brown out of South North Dakota talk about Armor in the Soil so much, and, and uh, people that are really huge advocates of this. Ray Archuleta is another yep. one. And uh, so... Anyway, the one that did not, probably one of the worst for runoff, was <laughs> the bare the per- dirt. Perfect, the perfect seed bed. The perfect seed bed, that's right, because it formed almost a crust with the first little bit of rain, and the rest of it just whoosh, washed I mean, right off. It was like almost like a ski slope, if you will, because of that little slant, and it, had, it formed a good little hard crust, about a quarter inch thick, probably. That that only that top layer got moisture, and then it began to run right off the top. So the bucket up front Looked was like not chalk. only very full of water, but it was right, extremely chocolate. murky brown, chocolate milk. So and there erosion. was even on the side of the trailer where they were doing this, there was particles of dirt splashed everywhere. up. Just dirt yeah. was thrown everywhere. Yeah. Number two, the grazed lip high pasture. Got a little bit of infiltration, but not a lot. And a lot st- of runoff still. Still just a lot of runoff, but the water wasn't as murky. Uh, murky. Number three was the rotationally grazed pasture that had a lot of vegetation, probably 12 to 18 inches tall vegetation, and it went through the profile down into the first jug that showed that a lot of water was infiltrating through the soil profile, which would eventually, in nature, have gone to an underground aquifer or stayed right there in the soil profile next to the roots. Yeah, to draw from that moisture for a much longer extended period of time than the other two examples. Number three, the hayfield, same thing, ran right off. So it was a very clear toe-smashing Well, and it didn't stop there because they showed the jugs of water and the sediment, the erosion capabilities of those soil types. And then they went to the perfectly prepared seedbed and and took the tray, picked it up, and flipped it over. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. And it was just as dry on the bottom. All the way through, except all, for the bottom, little... basically two and a half inches. All the way to that little tiny crust that that water had formed on top. It was powder dry. There was, was quarter inch zero. strip of mud, zero infiltration. So, yeah. 
once again, my my thought is why why do that to the soil and then ask and pray for rain to only I'll have much of it run off when you get it, not infiltrate the soil and hold you're 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 ruining the carrying capacity of water, the holding capacity of water, excuse me, um, in that soil by disking it, and, and then it's running off. In addition to that, it's holding there, like it, it's evaporating. In addition, I I don't everything's wrong. It's we're gonna, wrong. We're gonna go to the river tomorrow. We're gonna get out in the water and we're gonna pull the plug and say, please don't leak. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I don't. I didn't. Oh man, it it was one of those things that it's like I just I don't understand why that that is a a common practice, um, and I know we're supposed to be talking about summer management strategies, and and this the whole, is yeah the whole the whole point of this is, and I saw it today. Honestly, um, there was a, a video on on Instagram, and people at this time frame, we're talking beginning of July, especially if you have a lot of acres, and you are a, um, in a tillage system for planting, they're getting started now. For their fall food plots. And what that means is that at least a month time frame and the hottest month of the year, that soil is going to be completely exposed to wind, water, and the sun. Zero microorganisms are going to be able to live through that. And you're going to have zero moisture on the top level of the soil where the seed's going to go. Well, so after right before that rainfall simulator, we did the temperature check. Yeah, on bare, bare soil gra- versus bare ground versus uh underneath. shady cover. Yeah. Uh shady cover of weeds. It wasn't like it was shady cover in the timber. Right. And there was like a t- 25 degree temperature change or something like that. It, of the soil, not not just shade temperature of of the atmosphere, the air. This is soil temperature. So again, I, I, I should have air quoted um, perfectly prepared seed bed. I like saying that perfectly prepared seed bed. It's like one of those uh, one of the alliterations. Um, but it's it's obviously not a perfect seed bed if these are the effects of it when when we're trying to plant successfully. So I guess going back to the summer management strategy is, if if you're out there preparing now for false plots, um, you're putting that soil in a much worse condition to plant and and have success in the springtime than I if think, you left it alone and and uh, and cho- chose different options, maybe a broadcast or or a no-till drill if you have that available. Um, I it, think I, if I'm trying to prepare for the fall food plots right now. I think one of the best things that for me, what could I do? And I'm like, ugh, I, my soil is already like, I planted, let's just say, because this was another discussion we wanted to hit. I planted soybeans. The deer hammered them. But I want to control my weeds, so I keep spraying them. So you're just leaving exposed dirt well, or whatever's on top, and you just have that top part of your soil um, exposed. So mm-hmm. the temperature is going way up. For me, I'm just throwing that out there of going if if I was trying to fix that problem I'd be I'd almost be thinking about trying to get a bale of hay and roll it out there and cover that <laughs> right. soil. Got to cover it. Well, how many people whether it's a farm ground or a food plot, 
Um, but if, let's say you do disc, and, and we're not picking on anybody, hopefully just sharing information of, of let's say, a better way to improve soil health and forage quality in, in a long-term situation. Yes, these are the, mis- these are the mistakes we made. Yeah. So we're trying to help you with to prevent the mistakes that we made. Yes. It's not picking on you because we're just basically picking on ourselves from 10 years ago. There's there's still a perpetual kick of the rear if you will because like like we've talked about though, you know, there's still some plots especially on your family farm who man, it's tough to get something to grow because the degradation over the past years of improper um, management of the soil and the resources has cost you. It's it's a cup check every time we go out there <laughs> yeah. with no cup. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's what happens every time we go out there. It's just, it's just, oh, it's, it's a great reminder of a terrible thing. And, and someone's out there probably saying, well, what about farmers? How do they do it every year? Well, the amount of inputs that go into that soil is extremely high to maintain it. Yes, and and that's why farming is gets, obviously such a risk because and it gets so many higher inputs. every single year that they do that. Yes, correct, correct. So anyhow, where were we at? <laughs> <laughs> Going back to summer management, so that's one of the biggest things. It's the hottest time of the year. This is the time that a lot of things are growing. A lot of things are kind of going dormant, um, depending on what species we're talking about, but. Overall, one of the biggest things is look at your soil. How can you protect it? How can you protect your land during this time of year? Because rainfall oftentimes is very limited. So if I were to walk up to you, Matt, and say, okay, buddy, you need to absorb water, and I give you two options, a raincoat or a wool sweatshirt, which one are you going to pull to absorb water? Hand me the wool sweatshirt, buddy. That's right. (laughs) So we need to think of our land the same way. We need to think of a way to absorb as much water as we can, and that's by having the vegetation there to where we can actually absorb it and not let it run off. And, and not a, we're not talking like absorbing in the, um, the, the vegetative portion of that plant. We're talking about root systems. We're talking what you can't see under the ground. Root I, systems, I, lots of vegetation, um, not just one, one type of species, not just legumes or... Not just grasses, but a, a diversity of things growing to where we can take in as much water as possible. Because that's one of the unknowns. Um, just like what we talked about with the Gen X, you can't control it. It's an unknown. It's a roll of the dice every single year. Same thing with rainfall. You don't know when you're going to get rain, how much you're going to get. And um, what was the quote they, they said uh, at the grazing school was, you're always two weeks away from a drought here in southwest Missouri, which is, which is funny um, until you actually are. But if you do the right steps and have a diverse root system in the ground that can hold um, and the right amount of organic matter in the soil to hold water for longer periods of time, you don't feel the exact this the same extensiveness of that drought you can be carried through that drought and have a better growing season than if you don't treat the soil right protect it and give it what it needs as he said it's our fault oh darn i'm right yeah so that's one of the biggest things this time of year is looking at your food plots and saying okay what can i do to make this food plot better and if you're going out there and you're seeing bare dirt this time of year you've you need to fix that problem. Yeah. Well, and, and here's here's another thing that um, your brother and I saw, and this is um, 
one of the the permanent forced openings that you guys would have seen in in film number three, and we'll see again in film number four. Um, we had planted the wild game changer Stratton soybeans there. Um, they're coming up and, and looking really really good, but we were, had arrived there just after a rain. Oh, this is probably two weeks ago, and. If you've ever been to a crop field or you know, your own um, field that you prepared that had basically just open soil, there was no nothing uh, protecting it as you were planting through or broadcasting through um, standing vegetation, you may have seen this after a rainstorm. The underside of growing soybeans, um, you could see dust particles attached to it, basically. They were stuck to it. They had like this little coating of dust. And what that is, is the rain falls on the dirt and it splashes sediment up onto the bottom side of the, the leaves and on the stalk, the stem um, of the soybeans. And it's like, man, I would I would much rather not be wasting away this topsoil that's so precious around here or really anywhere. You need to be treating it as a resource. Um, but I want to protect that soil so when a rain drop does hit, it breaks apart and dissipates not on the soil but on the vegetation so it is seeped and captured by the soil not harsh splashes and disrupts the soil if that makes sense but you could look across there and you could totally see on all the soybeans the underside of them like you could you could it was like a powder touch you know um but we've got to try and get away from that yeah We've got to protect that soil. We didn't have a choice this year because as soon as it got cleared, we planted, like, right away. Um, but anyhow, we've got to treat the soil like it, like it's uh, our baby. Our like it's our best management yeah. thing we have. Because yeah, no everything doubt. comes from there. Looking at summer management, getting off the soil health and soil management let's look at our species that are growing specifically let's try to identify the non-native invasive species the summertime is a great time of the year to start looking for those invasive species specifically some that come to mind are spotted knapweed cerisa lespediza johnson grass I'm trying to think of some others, Matt. Help me um, out here. Most another, other, autumn olive, yeah. all these things. Japanese stilt grass, if you're on the East Coast. Um, we always talk about bush honeysuckle. You can still pick that out easily. Yep. Um, For me, you know, when you look out across Oriental the, bittersweet, an open field, um, even in, uh, well, let's go in with smooth brome. Um, I think of the Kansas property, and, and once you train your eye on smooth brome here in the Midwest, you start seeing it, especially in the northern states. You'll see it everywhere. Mm-hmm. How many pictures have you seen out of Iowa in the last month from friends of ours or people that w- we're friends with on Facebook that we may not specifically know, but they're in Iowa or Minnesota or South Dakota and Nebraska, and they post a picture of putting out trail cameras on the edge of a field, and it's just nothing but smooth brome well, around them. It's either nothing but smooth brome, but like it's like that artisticy, like oh, I'm gonna take this picture of the seed head in the in the foreground, and the background is me setting up a trail camera. But crap, my habitat sucks because I got smooth brome everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh man, it's 
not a native grass I think guy. Of, it's smooth brown. I get to where <laughs> I, I've trained my eyes so much to where it's like two sounds that can go off. It's like, bling, or, yeah. And when it when I see pictures, a lot of times out of like Iowa and Nebraska, and it's like smooth brown. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> it's just like, oh, make it stop. Just just get rid of it. Spray it. Burn it. Please. Well, and what I the notes your I your deer will appreciate you. Yeah, the the, the notes that I had um, for this was monitor. This is your time to absolutely be in monitor mode as things are growing. Um, you've got to be conscientious of what's growing. Don't just say green is good because not all the time green is good, or not all the time green is going to offer structure or forage or good forage at that um you've got to be able to manage it and look at what is growing across the landscape and if you don't have the skill set yet to be able to identify plants this is a great time to do that it's a little bit of an off season um but practice practice makes perfect get books get um the iNaturalist app and go out there snap pictures log stuff um like you're a madman trying to figure it all out and figure out what's good what's bad what should stay what should go um and and then make you can make better management decisions down the road by appropriately identifying accurately i guess identifying weeds plants and everything else invasives yeah I think of uh, our friend Mike Webster. Yeah. Uh, he sent me some texts today, and he's working in the timber. He said, working in the timber, it feels much better. Like, it feels so good for the soul. <laughs> <laughs> I laughed. He said, I'm taking care of tree of heaven. He said, I didn't oh, even yeah. know what it was oh, yeah. until uh, you came out here and told me about it. He said, now I see that stuff it's everywhere. everywhere. Yeah. And he's like, and I, and I think there was a spot close to his close to his uh, farm that it was growing in the ditch. He's like, I drove by that spot so many times to look at those trees, and I didn't even know what it was. And now mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, it's tree of heaven. It must go. Yeah. So, yeah, it's definitely, once you train your eye, and I think of summers where I was on Honey Locust Patrol or Cerise Lespedeza Patrol, and everywhere I looked, it was there in the ditches. And it's just like, once you see it, you can't unsee it. I, I spent a whole summer in Maryland um, working as basically a vegetation management crew leader, and we identified and had specific contracts to remove said invasives on Navy bases across, you know, mid-Atlantic, I guess. And, um, man, alive, you would not. Like, when you train your eye to look at this stuff, you cannot help but just drive down the road, honestly, uh, in disgust sometimes, which... You know, you could look at that two ways. Like, well, I don't want to drive down the road like that. But it's better to know. Don't be, uh, don't be naive to it. I don't guess. Don't keep your head under a rock. Yeah. There's things happening right. That rock will jump up and beat you up sometimes. I can't. I was on a podcast. I think it was the White Tail Guru podcast mm-hmm. uh, a while back, and they asked me some of the things, concerns I have, or some of the things that I uh, might in the future. And I think one of, I said that one of my biggest concerns is invasive species. And they kind of, like, building off of that, I said, you know, if you drive, if you identify invasive species or even species that are just 
naturally, like I wouldn't consider eastern red cedar as invasive um, as as like bush honeysuckle, but it's definitely invading areas and a lot of areas. And if you identify and train yourself on those, and you bush honeysuckles, autumn olives, eastern red cedar in areas, um, Cerisolespidiza, and you find Johnson grass, smooth brome, all these things that aren't native um, to a lot of these regions, and then you drive across the landscape, you'll find that, a, unfortunately, a lot of the landscape is turning into those. And that is something we should be very concerned about. Um, if we let our woodlots, our understories, be taken over by autumn olive, bush honeysuckle, other invasives, that is going to remove and take the rung of the ladder of the generation of the next generation of oaks and hickories, the native uh woodlands they're going to be taken out of the picture and it's going to be in once the old mature trees die out then we have the next generation or the next the next uh species that are going to fill back in are going to be invasives and that's what we have to be concerned about so it's very important non-native non-native yeah yeah um so again this goes back to the monitoring monitor the regeneration if you if you did do work in the winter time Go back to those areas and see, learn, watch how the deer work through the area. Watch what they're foraging on. Maybe you can identify some deer beds, figure out, okay, what kind of cover are they are they bedding in? Why might they be here? Um, monitor what's happening within your property. Uh, you know, if you, if you had a clear cut, um, and, and for us, we had a select cut throughout portion. We continue to go back, whether it's driving the gravel road or, or walking a couple of skitter trails. We walked the other day and almost every other step we were watching and seeing something different growing that deer were browsing on. It's just amazing to watch the diversity that comes back. Um, and this is going to fall right into the next comment, but managing or learning how the sun determines what will grow in certain areas. That is another monster thing in this time frame to be, I guess, mindful of. I don't have another another word, but if you can walk outside and you can have a perspective um, besides, again, green is good or, okay, I've got trees here and a field here, if you can step up your game, I guess, into understanding within the timber, if you did do a clear cut or you did do a bedding area thicket or a TSI um, project, now understand and watch the sunlight move across the landscape or move across that area in a, throughout a specific day and see what is growing there now. Sunlight to the forest floor means more vegetation. Yeah, I think of uh, when we were cutting just last weekend, mm-hmm. and we dove off the slope to make a little bedding area, because that's another thing you can do this time of year. Now, we wouldn't get aggressive with it and cut out two acres of junk timber and just level it, but we cut out a lot of timber um, and left a lot of good timber, but when you're cutting a tree this time of year, full canopy, you drop a lot of vegetation on the ground and open up a lot of canopy with just sometimes just cutting a few trees, uh, species that aren't even providing value. And there was one spot on that slope where I was like, man, look at all the stuff growing up there. And as we worked through and, and cut some other trees and we got up there close to that area, the sunlight had 
the sun had dropped to a certain portion uh, in the sky in that afternoon, and it was just beaming down on that spot, and there was little blue, big blue inning grass. There was a bunch of other uh, lead plant and things growing. It's like, that that's here and that's what this whole slope should be mixed with oaks and an oak woodland but we don't have that we have closed canopy forest and and i should say have but soon to be had (laughs) um because if you walk into your timber right now middle of the summer sun's beaming down and it's just shade everywhere you know that okay this is the time of the year where I'm going to get some sunlight on this forest floor and things are really growing. But everything, all the energy, that solar collector is 40 foot up in the tree or 100 foot up in the tree in that canopy, and it's not making it soil. No wonder it's just leaf litter. Well, And, and to understand what the solar collector is, that's the green vegetation. So if you have a treetop, a canopy... Um, and that's the first thing the sun reaches as it shines down. The solar collector, like you mentioned, is 40, 60, 80 foot above where deer are, where they're living at, where they're making their living at. So that's the first thing it, it hits, and it's not getting all the way to the ground. In relation, and in, in return, no forage or very little forage is going to be growing at a deer's level. So if you have vegetation, that is three to four to five, six foot tall, your solar collector is there at that level and most likely offering vegetation of the right cover, structure, forage value to deer that they make their living in. So why have vast amounts of land or property that is has a, let's say, a solar collector way out of reach of deer? This is the time to go and monitor and say, what can the sunlight for me in my respective area do? What can it produce? And that is what we saw the other day in that, that one portion of the slope. Enough sunlight was getting through. And that was a tiny snapshot. Huh. And that was yeah. only a, a sunlight throughout a small portion of the day. Yeah. One little... Exponentially, we can increase that area. Two-hour period in the afternoon, it got good sunlight. The rest of the time, it was in the shade. So, and then you go into what we see um, whenever we return to what was logged last summer and the amount of growth that is happening now once those trees have been removed. um, Some of those trees have been removed, and now we have kind of scattered trees with a lot of sunlight hitting the forest floor, and it's just... Throughout long periods of the day, oh, there's so it much makes growing, and and there's already waist high native grasses coming up in clumps scattered around. Oh yeah, the very first year, and sedges and flowers, annuals. Oh my gosh, it's amazing. And it, like you said, that area last year at this time of the year, that solar collector was way up there. The sunlight was not getting there. You could see almost all the way through it. It was pretty densely stacked, very poor quality, did not offer much in the in the form of forage. One year's difference, and all that light completely changed that area. Yeah. One For year. long-term benefit. Fire has not even returned on that slope. No, we haven't burned it yet. And I can't wait for that to happen. So Look out. A lot of things you can do this time of year. Another thing we did recently was the edge feathering. 
just mm-hmm. because uh, you know we talk about we would we usually do that a lot more in the in the winter after deer season, but you can still be doing it this time of year. Um, and even when you cut those trees, you're still going to get a little bit of regrowth um, and provide some more forage right down there at that cut stump. So it's one of those things you can do. Um, you can do it as a hunting strategy and cut some of those trees over some trails um, to try and steer them a little closer to your stand. Definitely something you don't want to overlook. So edge feathering, creating those bedding areas. Um, we we did both those just recently. Burning dozer decks out of food plots. Yeah, that's another thing you can do. Sure um, did. But monitoring those invasives, that's definitely something this time of year you really want to do because if you can get on it right now, you can catch it, especially like Cerise Lespides. Catch it before it makes seed. So if you go back, okay, I'll get it this winter, that's fine. Just know that it's going to make some seed, and you probably have another year of fighting that in hand-to-hand combat um, as it makes seed and starts to re- try to populate the area. So keep in mind, jump on them as soon as you can. Don't don't waste your time dilly-dallying around. I'll get to it because sooner or later it's going to take over. What else? That's pretty that's, well. That's it. wrapping it up. I think we've got some uh, some woodsy rather's, but uh, the last thing on that that summertime management is this is your this is your monitoring mode. That that gear needs to be switched, and if you see something that needs to be addressed, address it now. Like Adam said, before it matures and begins to put all the energy into seed production, because then you're gonna have to come back and address the same battle next year. And monitor i think of this too we're going back to the one of the things of plowing or disking or completely turning over the soil and then saying oh, i can't wait for rain praying for rain the other one is how many times during the summer ah i don't want to uh i don't want to go out there it's too darn hot but you're going to leave your soil one of your best resources laying out there turned over or laying out there barely covered and and just to bake yeah it's like you when i see turned over soil in the in the summer i'm like oh somebody made a big batch of brownies they're sitting letting out there just trying to bake it and that's something if you don't want to take the heat think about your soil it doesn't want to either so protect it it's got feelings too man yeah (laughs) (laughs) no it, it, it again this 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 um angle about soil management comes from long-term longevity of the resource and because and we talked about it before but if we're trying to manage deer we have to manage um, the browse and structure that they are forging on and that is a direct in relation to the soil and quality especially food plots if you want them to be the best you've got to take care of what they rely on and the food plots of forage is growing in there rely on healthy soil. If you want to best. remove input costs of, of fertilizer and lime, make that soil healthier. You, you got to manage it. Protect it. That's right. Keep All it active. Right. Would you rather? Yeah. I, I kind of kept it in a little bit of a theme. I think you probably did too of, of summer management. Just to kind of bring in the perspective of monitoring and, and addressing issues um, that could arise. But my question is, would you rather spot spray three, acre, three acres of mixed old field and Cerisa Lespediza or boom spray eight acres of straight solid Cerisa Lespediza? <laughs> I'm spot spraying. 
Um, and the reason for it is I look at it, if you told me I've got to spot spray three acres or um, I get to boom spray or cover a whole eight acres, I'm going, oh, is this like time frame? You can either do it in the year 2018 or you can do it in the year 2022 because that's what it's going to eventually turn into. I would spot spray because that's kind of how our plan of attack is because it's not established. When I see a field of entire Cerisa, somebody's let that be neglected for a while and let it just take over the field. So I would much rather spot spray, even though it's going to be hotter. I may not be in the air-conditioned tractor. What is an air-conditioned tractor? Who am I kidding? Ours has a... Ours has the canopy where the hot engine, even in the summer, the hot engine. The heat still- just sits underneath of it and tries to like, you know, just, it's like a, uh, you know, like you've seen those, tr- the back of the truck bed simulators, like um, if you have your tailgate open or down, like how the air circulates, yeah. that heat off the engine just underneath, it's like trapped, it's like hit you in the face and then. I feel yeah. like it's almost like a hose, like a snorkel hose. You like just a- put it right mm, to your face. Engine heat. Mm. I love it. Yeah. Diesel exhaust. That's right. And so a man out I would much rather spot spray. I'm going with spot spraying too, not only for the fact of it it would be um, easier, but hey, if I'm if I'm the old field, I'm like, oh sweet, look at all this other good stuff in here. Um, I can take enjoyment out of that. And generally in old fields, I see, I don't know what the ratio is. I don't know if there is a ratio, but there's always going to be in an old field where you just let it be old field. You're going to have to fight some sort of, oh, yeah. in most instances, some sort of invasive species. I will add, since we're or talking about undesirable species, invasive species control and herbicides, make sure you know what herbicide you're using and what temperatures it works in. Because in the summertime, a lot of those herbicides don't work when the temperature Above gets... Above X. Yeah. Temperature gets to a certain... Um, degree so make sure you check that out read the label of every herbicide you're ever going to use bingo matt would you rather you've got the notes you might as well read it to yourself um would you rather if you had eight acres of a field whoa 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 bro you said three acres in the notes okay. it jumped into eight? whatever it is i don't even know <laughs> three acres and we're talking, okay, we've got three acres of a field that's taken over by mare's tail. Okay. Would you rather? It's August. August. Ooh. Would you rather bush hog the entire thing? I'm setting you up, and you better say the right answer. Um, would you rather bush hog the entire thing and knock it down? Or would you rather just let it go? Considering time frame... I would much rather let it go. That's right. We're talking seed production is already there. And the, again, what we just talked about, the the whole soil health, if you're completely just bush hogging those three acres and it's a straight, just pretty much monoculture mare's tail, you're, you're bush hogging it down and there's nothing left. It already made seed. Already made seed. That problem's the already point, there. What's the point in, in mowing it down now? I'm not getting anywhere with them. I'm just to burning me, fuel. I think you, we also need to understand what mare's tail is. And a lot of times it's summer annual. It comes in in a lot of disturbed sites. Mm-hmm. So if you have that big of an infestation of it, you either had a lot of exposed soil or you had some sort of disturbance. Some woodlot got dozed out. 
and it came back because it can grow faster than a lot of your other perennials. They are establishing roots first. So a lot of times when you see a huge infestation of mare's tail, you have bare ground at some point. And over time, those annuals, as nature works, those annuals work out of the system and it becomes more of a perennial basis. Mm -hmm. So I would much rather just let it stand and know that nature will replace itself with more perennials and the problem be fixed over time. But it is scary to look out and see an entire field of mare's tail. And if you probably walk around the outer edges of the field, you probably will see that it's been nipped. That I, I'm I'm probably gonna put a hundred dollar bill on that. Yeah, it's, it's probably nipped because deer will forage upon mare's tail. Yeah. You know, you hate it in your food plots. <clears throat> they will definitely absolutely will forage on it. They will eat it, but not like it's not like not it's not like a most desirable. Yeah, um, but they will forage on it. And and the other side of that is, if you bush hog that late in the summer, you're not gonna have a great growing season to to pr- grow back some sort of tall vegetation. To protect other species like small game. And so even though it sucks and you may hate it with every bean of your body, um, it still is providing cover to small game. And I would rather have that than nothing at all and still have seed whatever way I look at it. So definitely wouldn't let it. I wouldn't go out there with a bush hog. You know what? Kitty May National Convention is is coming up very, very quickly. Um, and so if you haven't signed up and you want to go, please do sign up and join us down there. We are so pumped for it. Um, talked about uh, our presentation actually today. And, man, it's going to be fantastic. Um, going to open a lot of eyes, hopefully, and show. Uh, and we will cover it on the podcast. Don't worry. Um, but you will want to be there um, in person because not only are, are we speaking – um, feel like we've got a good, <laughs> feel like we've got a good presentation. A lot of other great, great speakers, communicators, um, and extremely knowledgeable people. Knowledgeable people are going to be down there, so you are not going to want to miss that. Um, there's, oh, happy Fourth of July, too, and thanks to all the uh, past veterans out there too. This is an awesome week. Hope you guys get out there and celebrate. I couldn't tell. Did you say past and current? And current. And current, excuse me. Yeah. Um, awesome week. I love this holiday. I really do. I do too. You know, uh, it's something we all need to fly the flag, step aside, thank the veterans, both present and past, and because uh, it is an amazing country we live in, and it's amazing that we get to go out and have fun, plant food plots, and make prescribed fires, and do all that wonder, wonderful, wonderful stuff. Anyway, that wraps up another week of the Land and Legacy Podcast. We will catch you next time. See ya. Speaking of catch, we're going fishing tomorrow. Hot dog. I can't wait. Thanks for listening to another episode of Land and Legacy's Hunting and Habitat Management Podcast. If you like what you hear, check us out at landandlegacy.tv. You can submit a viewer question right there. We're answering on the podcast. Or find us on Facebook and Instagram. Feels pretty good knowing that from the beginning of time, God has called us to be a caretaker, gamekeeper, a manager of the land. So with that being said, don't you think we should do it all for the love of the land and the glory to God? Yeah.